it feels like every time I'm up here like this, I have an explanation. And here is mine today. I am speaking in Reverend Rod's space today because several months ago I accepted an invitation to give what's called a way-seeking talk at White Heron Sangha. And this is an invitation to someone who came from somewhere else and is on her way to somewhere and isn't planning to tell anybody anything that they really need to know, <laughs> but how they came to be where they are. It turns out then at a worship arts meeting that Rod needed a speaker for today, and he said, wow, isn't this serendipitous? You're already giving a talk. You can just give another one. <laughs> well, of course, it's not going to be the same talk because you are you, you, and they are not you, you. So it, it's all going to be fine. Um, as it turns out, we will see, since the pulpit needed to be filled and I was preparing to speak, Will it be serendipitous, or is it just another big mistake? <laughs> you will judge. <laughs> so, let's consider the number of ways one can fall short, make a mistake, misread, be mistaken, miscue, misinterpret, misjudge, misperceive, misquote, mishandle, miscalculate, mislead, misorder, misspeak, or just plain miss. <laughs> oh, wait, one more. You can be a misanthrope and have contempt for the entire human race ever, or their entire nature and their behavior. You're just the species in general. And what I will say this morning will probably not be what I say this evening, but the beginning is the same, because way-seeking started while I was a UU in San Francisco. It was like this. My best friend Kate's mother died, and Kate was distraught. I was Kate's best and most loyal friend. There was nothing I wouldn't do to make her life better. And at the time, she was baking cookies and bringing them around San Francisco and dropping them off at various locations, and she didn't drive, and I had a car. So every morning, I would pick her up, and we would go around San Francisco, and she would drop the cookies off. And at every time, we would meditate. We decided that this is what we needed to do. We needed to, we knew that in Buddhism, the first noble truth is that there's suffering everywhere. And by the third noble truth, I guess if you make it that far, that you can cure suffering. And then the fourth noble truth is the way to do it ethically. So we meditated. And after a while, we decided that we would go hear Eugene Cash, who was speaking in the Star King Hall at the UU in San Francisco. But we knew that you can't just listen to somebody lecture you about Buddhism and suddenly stop suffering. So it was a good thing that we were meditating. And soon we were meditating more times a week, 30 minutes to 40 minutes, and we joined groups and we sat and we listened to Buddhist talks.
and I would go to Kate's house on Monday, especially because I was writing a blog. It was called Spirit Flows Through, and she was my editor. So that was another opportunity for us. Eventually, we started going to the Zen Center in San Francisco, and it was kind of, I don't know, rigid a little. So we went on BART, on the Bay Area Rapid Transit, to Oakland, and there was EBMC, or East Bay Meditation Center, which was multicultural, and all ages from very young to how old I am now. So it was a lovely place to be. Now, at this point, Kate and I stayed friends, but I went in a different direction. Kate told me, don't go. Don't do this. Please don't do this. She obviously knew me better than I knew myself. I took a Zen teacher. And, I guess you could say, and that made all the difference. Leanne, Reverend Leanne, was the woman that I asked to be my teacher. She was Vietnamese, and she was on the board of directors at EBMC. And I remember that I met her because she used to come around when she led meditation, and she would poke you like this, sit up straight, do this. She didn't say anything. She just adjusted you. And I thought, gee, this is exactly what I need. <laughs> no. But I thought, okay, I'll, I'll go ahead. I'll take a teacher because when you're serious, that's the next step. And I saw myself as serious. Well, so far, so good. I never forget to pick up Kate. I'm always on time. But... In the next part of this story, I will be making a lot of mistakes. And when there is a Zen teacher in the picture, you've got to know that your mistakes will take you to the learning territory. Okay. Sidebar. You know a sidebar? From here, I'm mostly going to be talking about mistaking. Uh, this story, this talk is going to lead to a, a big misunderstanding that I had with my teacher. But the fact is, it may not sound like much to you. <clears throat> oh, good. I numbered this. <laughs> All right. But we are not, you and I are not the same people. You didn't have the same parents I had. You didn't internalize the same fears. And we haven't experienced the same traumas. And everyone won't be as interested in their own faults or social self that they have constructed to get by in the world as I have been. Indeed, some of you haven't had to do that. You haven't had to construct a false self to get by. More power to you. But please, as you listen, practice what poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge called a willing suspension of disbelief. If my misstep seems somewhat inconsequential to you when compared with the other misbehaviors that you will hear I committed. And while you are practicing suspension of disbelief, please consider what it could mean to willingly practice suspending not just disbelief, but on occasion, belief itself. 
Before I relate the mistaking that I want to claim has made a difference, I confess that when it came to being Reverend Leanne's student, I was never the student she deserved. Despite having been a teacher myself, I had, have, a love-hate relationship with authority. I love, loved being told what to do, thrive, thrived on it. And I hate, hated being told what to do, resented it, and didn't always obey. Leanne said, don't go to other lectures than mine. I went. She said, stop reading philosophical books. You can't learn Buddhism by reading. I read. When Reverend Leanne scheduled teaching sessions for her students, I sometimes failed to prepare. She warned me, do better or you will not receive the precepts which are the Buddhist equivalent of ethical commandments, but which tend to feel more like suggestions than orders. Receiving the precepts is part of lay ordination, a beautiful ceremony during which those who have done what they were told get to put on a blue bib they have sewn themselves. It's called a rakasu. It's called a rakasu. I'm getting a signal. Let me know if you can't hear what I'm saying. All right, better now. Okay. I love you. All right. Okay. And during the ceremony of lay ordination, each person receives a special name from their teacher, a name that says what the teacher feels you are becoming, like questing bird by a stream of compassion, something lovely and personal. Long story short, Leanne says I am a bad student. She faults me for missing our scheduled meetings because often I have been literally out to lunch with my very demanding extrovert of a girlfriend, Corky. And as a result, Reverend Leanne says we will stop the student-teacher relationship, but she tells me that stopping does not mean quitting. So I never saw a rakasu, but neither do I quit. I memorized the first five precepts taught by the Buddha that Reverend Leanne wants me to learn, although there are more than five, and no one would ever hear me recite them until now. Number one, abstain from doing harm. Yes, currently there are two daddy long legs just lying around in my bathtub. Two, abstain from doing harm. I said that. Two, abstain from taking something not offered to you. I took that seriously because sometimes while I was writing my blog, I failed to cite my wisdom sources adequately. I now do it religiously. Three, abstain from sexual impropriety. It was Always too late for that. <laughs> Abstain from intoxicants that can cloud the mind. Of course, fentanyl, heroin, or excess anything. But let me get back to Reverend Leanne. Before she ends the student-teacher relationship, Zen teachers schedule a dokusan with their students. This is a time for the teacher to talk to the student 
about their meditation and how they're doing. Often a dokusan occurs after you sit zazen, which is how you sit and think about nothing and you just sit there for an hour and it's just fine because you face the wall with your eyes open in the Zen center. And it's a formal meditation center. I sit across from her upstairs in the Zen center, and she asks me if I have anything to report, like during the sit, was I too much in my head? Had I dropped down into my body, resorted to counting my toes so as not to be lost in thought? And I say, no. Well, she says, I have something to say to you. Oh, no. Terror. My go-to emotion. An immediate and familiar fear arises. Now what have I done wrong this time? Where have I fallen short? How have I failed? And I get ready to defend myself and prepare to be devastated. Second sidebar. You may know that Buddhist teachers do not charge money for teaching or giving Dharma talks or for anything. But there is such a thing as dana, D-A-N-A. It is a generosity practiced by the student as a gift to the teacher. And it is expected, or should I say hoped for, because many Buddhist teachers do not work full-time at another job, or some not at all. And I think that one of my very best traits, something I pride myself on, was generosity. I always give her Donna when we met. I imagined I was gifting her with more than enough, very generous, in fact, and myself was made glad by this act of generosity. And my view of myself was expansive and proud. Back to the Dokusan. I dread that Reverend Leanne is about to tell me something I am not going to want to hear. If she complains I don't gift her enough, I will be distraught and probably angry. I prepare to take a beating. It has been my practice, sort of, to please her like a dog that drops a bone in front of its master and wants a reward. Except, of course, as I have said, homework and remembering to go to the meetings. Then she says, Allison, always put your gift in an envelope. It doesn't have to be a new one. Any envelope will do. Don't hand money to your teacher. I'm surprised. I sit there, outside a defendant self. She is saying words I had not imagined. She is not attacking me. I haven't needed to be a defendant self. It had simply never occurred to me to ask her how she would like to receive Donna or considered asking any other student how they gifted their teacher. And in that moment... I realized my larger misstep. I failed to be aware of her as someone other than an extension of my self-image. 
I am on the Buddhist path with a teacher. But having a teacher is not all about me. My misbehavior has affected her. And I know it sounds so obvious. So why has that seemingly small misunderstanding with Reverend Leanne loomed larger than the missed meetings and undone assignments? Why has it had a more lasting impact than the blue bib I didn't sew, the rakasu, and the special name I never received in the lovely ceremony in which I never participated? Did I make many missteps? Did I fall short? Yes, I did. I was not the student Reverend Leanne deserved. She has many students now who value her teachings at Access to Zen in San Francisco, and since I moved here, I have been to see her. She continues to be encouraging, and I can listen to her Dharma talks when they are featured online at tricycle.org or at the Zen Center website. I believe jumping to a conclusion at the Dokusan with Reverend Lien underscores the truth of these words attributed to Buddhist psychologist Mel Schwartz. A mistake is an event, the full benefit of which we have not yet come to realize. From a spiritual perspective, he says, it might be argued that there is no such thing as a mistake. He writes, if we can learn from our mistakes and not let them rob us of our boldness or hope, then we can grow. Eventually, we will see these mistakes as essential to all our later accomplishments and victories. The mistakes then become something we are happy happened instead of something we regret. And I continued to benefit from the moment with Reverend Leanne when I assumed she would find me lacking, that I had disappointed her. In that moment, I misanticipated, is that a word, an attack that would wound my sense of self. This mistake is the mistake that keeps on giving, a falling short I see as essential to later accomplishments and victories, as psychologist Schwartz put it. In this sanctuary not so many weeks ago, I experienced a moment that went the right way, maybe because of what happened with Reverend Leanne. A friend sitting next to me asked me what I would be talking about in an upcoming talk, and before I could answer, she greeted a woman sitting in front of her. I let it go. No. In fact, I did more than that, because in that moment, I admired her ability to greet a person she didn't yet know. That wasn't me. I have a hard time doing that. I chose not to feel anything negative toward her or myself. I was not being disregarded because I had nothing important to say. This other person was not more important to her. Indeed, within a day, she emailed an apology, and when she explained to me what had happened in that moment, I was so happy for her. And happy for myself, that I had not belittled either of us. 
hadn't chosen to feel neglected, hadn't hauled up memories of a miserable childhood, and had not stopped loving her. So what is the takeaway I hope for you? First, that you willingly suspend beliefs you might have about yourself and others. And second, in the spirit of the reading that Ron read, I hope you are happy to have heard me relate a few of my shortcomings. If you want to hear more, (laughs) I will tell you if you will tell me yours. We will then become friends and endear ourselves to each other. Please rise as you are willing and able and join us in singing hymn number 131 in the gray hymnal, Love Will Guide Us. <laughs>